you still speak today. Speak to us today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as you turn to 1 John, we're jumping into chapter 2 this morning. We are kind of in this section today concluding the, the second major section after the prologue, the opening four verses. And um, the, the, the second major section that we've been in deals for the first time with sin and its relationship to someone who claims to be in fellowship with God. As we mentioned before, this won't be the last time we cover this topic. That First John is not your typical uh, letter from an apostle to a church. It's more of a poetic sermon. And so he kind of circles back around to these same ideas over and over and over again. So if you're not fully getting it, if you're not fully present, if some of this is like, really, that? Uh, don't worry. We're going to come back to this idea again and dig into it some more as we walk through First John. Um, um, so far, we've seen him declaring that God has made himself known through the word of life, eternal life, that we know as Jesus, Jesus who could be seen, heard, and touched. And God has made Jesus known to John and all the apostles and to believers then and now to us so that we could be brought into this intimate fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, and experience this ultimate joy. And there have been those among them who have claimed to be a part of this fellowship. But as we saw um, previously, they've instead turned out to be liars. Their lifestyle of sin has proven that the confession of their lips was a false confession. They've claimed to have fellowship with God, <coughs> yet have walked in darkness. They've claimed, we don't need Jesus to cleanse us from sin, which means Jesus had to take on flesh that's not a necessary doctrine because, as they say, we have no sin, which is a lie. And uh, in the first few verses of chapter 2, John turns from dealing with the false statements of those who had left the church. Now he wants to speak to those who remain. And we're going to see God providing a freedom from sin, a remedy for sin that can be proclaimed to the whole world. So First uh, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. John, very, very tender language, addresses the church as my little children, just like a, a father talking to their little kids. Uh, very pastoral, very intimate, uh, and he's giving them one of these purpose statements that we're going to see continually throughout this letter. I'm writing these things to you so, and in this case, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, he just criticized these people who had left because they had said, we have no sin, and now he's giving them instruction so that they may not sin. So, can you feel some of the tensions that this, these people were experiencing that we need to experience. On one hand, we have this reality that we don't have to sin. On the other hand, we are still sinful. And we experience that all the time. Some of the tensions we live with as Christians. The Bible is so good at presenting them because they, they really are, are helpful. Because they, they help uh, different kinds of people in ways that different kinds of people need help. And they can also help the same person when we're in different places in our walk with God. Uh, to the group that had left this church denying the physical incarnation of Jesus, they were trying to recruit others to join them. They had 
created this understanding of sin that allowed them to, to seriously say, like with a straight face, we have no sin. We don't need Jesus to be incarnate. We don't need him to live a perfect life and die on the cross in our place because we don't have sins that need to be cleansed. And it's thought that this early form of Gnosticism believed that they were joined to Christ as some kind of mystical spiritual union so that the physical acts of the body, even if they were sinful, they had no bearing on the spiritual union they shared with Christ. And so for them, the reality of the fact that we all still sin was what they needed to hear. And it could be the same for anyone today who denies the sinfulness of humanity, that denies original sin. It's, uh, so sinful that it requires the bloody physical sacrifice of the Son of God. Like at best, it's downplayed as the human condition. Well, no one's perfect, right? Uh, not that I've offended God, I'm deserving God's wrath. No, no, no. Well, let's not get carried away. I'm, I'm broken, I'm flawed, but let's not take it to that extreme. Or I even have good reasons for the sins I commit, the ways that I've been sinned against, the wounds that I carry, the hurts that I've experienced. But a rebel or enemy of God, no, that's, I'm not that sinful. That's too far. Like that's the best case scenario for someone today who would downplay our sin nature. Now, some would just outright deny sin nature. Like we're not born with a sin nature. We're, born, we're not born as rebels against the God who made us. Like we learn harmful and unhealthy. Again, that's lessening, softening sin. We're harmful and unhealthy behaviors, not sin. We learn harmful and unhealthy behaviors that lead to more sorrow, that lead to more sadness, that lead to more brokenness, but if we could theoretically create an environment where these harmful behaviors weren't learned and passed along, then theoretically we could evolve as humans beyond these hurtful communities that we've created. You see, the problem is not in us. The problem is outside of us, right? And denying original sin doesn't lead to a better world, but it leads to a world of more sin. Because those who deny original sin get put in power, start making decisions, and guess what happens? More sin because the problem is inside of us. And we who call ourselves Christians, we, we add to the problem because even if we get our theology right, we can get really self-righteous and elevate ourselves and our rules and our way of life and look down on those not like us and judge those not like us because they're not like us. And look how great we are. People should, people should just be more like us. And every church, every denomination has a list of rules to follow that make them great how you dress or what you eat or what you wear or what movies you like or what kind of coffee you like or whatever. But the basic essence is we figured it out. Here's our list of rules. Follow our list and you can be like us and be okay, not like those people. Or sometimes we lessen sin by saying things like, well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. As though there's no connection between the sinner and the sin. Or we say things like, uh, sin is just the way God made me and it can't be a sin because God made me this way. Or we say things like, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. As though the eternal and never-changing reality being justified and forgiven has no bearing on our everyday life. Or tolerance and love should keep us from even calling out sin. Just, judge not lest you be judged. Now there are snippets of truth to all of those things, but they can be overused and abused so that the problem of sin is downplayed and not dealt with. And we in the church, like we have PhDs in sin downplaying. Like we're really good at it. We can totally soften it, and we're not that bad. One woman confided in the uh, hymn writer Charles Wesley. She said, I am a great sinner, 
uh, I am a Christian, but sometimes I fail. Please pray for me. And Wesley looked at her and sternly said, yes, ma'am, I will pray for you, for truly you are a great sinner. And she's like, taking it back. Like, why would you say that to me? Like, what do you mean? I've never done anything that's very wrong. <laughs> and that's what we do. Like, we say these words. Do we even know what we're saying? Do we even mean these things? Or worse, we can live a life of, uh, we can justify sin by saying, well, we, can live a li- we can't live a life of sinful perfection. We're also going to sin, so why even try to fight against sin? John Stott put it like this. It is possible to be either too lenient or too severe towards sin. Too great in lenience almost encourages sin in the Christian by stressing God's provision for the sinner. Almost what Paul dealt with in Romans 6. Does uh, sin abound because grace is so abounding? No. An exaggerated severity, on the other hand, either denies the possibility of a Christian sinning or refuses him forgiveness and restoration if he falls. In both extreme positions are contradicted in this letter by John. I think it was Spurgeon who used the analogy of an acorn. I brought an acorn from my yard. I, th- uh, I think this is a pin oak. I'm not sure. I've got a swamp oak and a pin oak. I think this is the smaller one, pin oak. Um, Spurgeon said that in an acorn, one single acorn, you have an ocean of wood. And some of you can already see this. You plant one acorn in a place of fertile soil and you water it and there's sunlight and up grows a tree. That's some wood, but on that tree is a thousand or in my yard, 10 trillion more acorns. And you plant all of those acorns and up grow more trees and they all have more acorns and exponential growth. You can see where this goes. Just in one acorn is everything necessary put in the right circumstances that you can have an ocean of wood just from one acorn. And Spurgeon says, sin is like an acorn of evil inside of us. Like we look at all the evil that's out in the world and we think, how can people act like that? How can people do that? How can people get that wicked and that evil? And, and all of that is inside of our hearts. The potential to be that is in every single one of us. It's all there. Uh, apart from the grace of God that would put us in the right, cir- the, rather the wrong circumstance with the wrong influences that would allow all of that to flourish. Like we, we have to see sin as potentially that bad in in every single one of us. Both scripture and experience teach us that man is both majestic and monstrous. We indeed are majestic for among all creation we alone have a capacity for rational thought, moral choice, artistic creativity, covenantal relationships, and humble worship of the divine. But we're also monstrous. Jesus says in uh, in Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile a person. The worst sins, the sins you think you can never commit, the sins that we judge others for, the potential for those sins are inside of every single one of us. If they haven't shown up yet, it's only by God's grace. His common grace that keeps sin at bay, that keeps the world from being its worst version of itself, or his saving grace that has and is transforming us. And that's the second emphasis the Bible makes that we need to take hold of. Yes, 
We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. But yes, secondly, sin can be overcome. Tim Keller says the Bible makes us the most pessimistic people and the most optimistic people on earth. Like we're pessimistic. There's no amount or degree of evil or sin or suffering that surprises us. And we should never be shocked at what we see. Of course that can happen. Of course that can happen. Of course people could do that. That's what sin does. Destroy, divide, decay, destruction. We know the greatest problem in our world is sin. And it infects and affects everything. Nothing is untouched. Yet, we also know sin doesn't ultimately win and doesn't have to win in our lives. And so John can say with all seriousness, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In Christ, we've been set free from the penalty and power of sin so it is possible to resist temptation and say no to sin. That possibility does exist with every opportunity to sin. But th the thing is, we're so sinful, we're never even fully aware of all those opportunities. We don't even know all the sinful, the sins of omission, the good things that we should be doing that we don't do. We're not even aware of those things. That's how broken we are. So if we tend to downplay sin, no, it's, you need to hear from, from this letter. It's real, it's bad, it's inside of you. But if you tend to despair over sin, you tend to be crushed by your own failures and lack of ability to say no to sin, then you need to hear sin has no lasting power over you. And John knew this because he immediately follows up after he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So the problem is inside of us the solution is outside of us. Interestingly, the world gets it the exact opposite. But the problem is outside of us and the solution is inside of us. You really are inherently a good person. You just need to fully discover who you are and, and then you will can kind of save yourself by becoming the truest version of who you are. And there's elements of truth to that in the sense that we become the truest version of who we are in Christ not just in ourselves apart from Christ. So the Bible would say our sinful hearts are the problem. We have no solution inside of us. We need an alien invasion, someone coming from the outside to step in and help. And that someone, of course, is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is number one, our advocate, and number two, our sacrifice. Incredible, beautiful, high, lofty pictures of Jesus. If we want help with our sin problem, this is not only where we start, but this is where we stay. There's nothing and no one else that can solve our sin problem like Jesus because nothing and no one else is who he is and has done what he can, has done. And so any solution to our sins, any kind of um, plan, program, process that you want to work out that leaves out Jesus, you're just putting a Band-Aid on a cancer diagnosis. Jesus alone is our advocate. Jesus alone is our sacrifice. So first, he's our advocate. Literally, paraclete in the original language of the New Testament. It's a term used primarily by John in his gospel letter to refer to the Holy Spirit as the helper who is sent by the Father and the Son. And in this letter, John uses the same term to refer to Jesus. And it's a, it's a legal term, like a helper, a counselor, an advocate. You speak for someone in their place. Like maybe you've been in a situation where you needed help. And how grateful you were to get that help from that counselor, that helper. Like one of my girls got me a t-shirt for Father's Day. It says, if all else fails, call dad. 
and I love to uh, be that for my family. You know, all dads love to be problem solvers. Uh, there's a problem, let me fix it, help you out. Um, and it's much more needed when they're younger. When they get older, yeah, sure, no problem driving across town, changing your tire, helping you with a battery, a car that's not working, all that kind of stuff. But I'm also, when they get older, you're teaching them how to do it yourself. Why? Because I'm not always going to be available. I might, I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to be dead, but I might be out of town. I'm going to be handy. So here's how you can handle some of these things yourself. Uh, but it, we, we all love that kind of help. Like things could, we could do for ourselves, but having someone chip in to help us out makes it life a little better. But this situation that's being imagined here is a little more desperate than this. The situation is, uh, this person is helpless until a helper steps in. Like, um, I don't know if you've ever been there legally. Probably not many in this room have been there legally. But think of it medically. Like, that's what can be so humbling about a hospital situation. If you're the one in the bed, needing the treatment, the surgery, the whatever, you are helpless. You're 100% dependent on other people to show up and help you, or you might not make it. And you've had situations maybe with loved ones, or maybe you've been there, family or friends, They've got to be in the room to talk to the doctors because you're out of it. You're not able to even speak for yourself. They've got to be there to advocate for you. And until you're mended up, you know, sewed up, stitched up, whatever's got to happen to you, you're stuck. And if people didn't help you, you'd stay there in that place. Completely helpless. And you need an advocate to be your voice. You need an advocate to speak for you, to help you. Now, the language here in the Bible is a courtroom language. And the God, the judge, is reviewing our record, and it's not good. Like on our own, we, like all mankind, are sinful and fall short of the glory of God. Or as John will say later in this letter, sin is lawlessness. We've all broken God's commands, every single one of us. We have failed to perfectly obey God's commands. And as Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. So the wages that... The paycheck that we've earned for our sins is death. If we get what we deserve, we get death. So here we are in the courtroom before the judge, guilty as you can be. Who is going to help us? Who is going to be our voice? Who is going to advocate for us in this helpless position? If we're guilty, deserving of the punishment coming our way, how are we going to get off the hook? And in steps Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Some of us might imagine this scene in our mind and we think it should say Jesus Christ, the loving one, or Jesus Christ, the merciful one, or Jesus Christ, the gracious one, because that's how we get off the hook, right? God, the father wants to condemn the sinner to their just punishment. And Jesus, our advocate, calls out and says, dad, cut him some slack. I love them. You love them. Give them a break. Show some grace and mercy. They're really sorry. They're going to try harder next time. It'd be really loving if you let them off. But it says that our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it's absolutely essential that this is who Jesus is in this instance. If you showed up in court for a ticket and you were guilty and there's a fine to pay and you pleaded your case, or maybe you had a good lawyer who pleaded for you, leniency, whatever reason, and the judge says, you know what? All these laws drive me nuts. I'm not going to worry about laws anymore. 
You're free to go. Everyone's free to go. Like, would he be a good judge? Would she be a good judge? No. Because a traffic tickets, nothing. Who cares about that, right? But we want there to be justice. And we want there to be laws upheld. When there's true crimes being committed that are truly oppressing people, that are truly corrupt, that are truly gaming the system, we want people held accountable for those things so more people aren't oppressed. God's ordained government and society to not uh, uh, to, to, to follow these laws, to reward the good and punish the evil so society doesn't descend into anarchy. Or if the judge heard your case and said, you know, today is a good day. I just feel like showing you some grace and mercy. You're off the hook today. Like you would be so happy. You won't believe what this judge said. But you wouldn't really be happy about a judge who just on a whim, because he felt like it, she felt like it, decided to let you off the hook. Because what if you showed up in their court the next time and it wasn't a good day? And you get the book thrown at you. Like that's not a good judge. What makes a good judge is one who handles the law with justice, fair and impartial to every single person. If you're rich, you don't get a special pass. If the color of your skin is a certain color, you don't get a special pass. If you're male or female, you don't get a special pass. You're, we're all held accountable by the law in the same way. And therefore, what Jesus is advocating for on our behalf isn't love, grace, and mercy from the judge, but justice. And Jesus, our advocate, has to be the righteous one because that is how he satisfied the justice of God. Our record is guilty. His is not. And Jesus steps in and says to God the Father, don't see them or treat them according to the record, but treat them according to mine. My perfect record. Now it is his love and grace and mercy that drove him to be our righteous advocate. But in his righteous work in the incarnated body, that's what gets us off the hook in God's courtroom and allows God to be a just and good judge. And sometimes we have this image of Jesus like arguing on our behalf, like he's having to convince a reluctant judge to let us off the hook, pleading with him as if we just keep sinning and messing up and he's, come on, give him another chance, God. That's not the case at all. Because God himself initiated this plan. God himself said, this is how I'm going to fix your worst problem. I'm going to do it myself. Not reluctant, but willingly. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or we'll see later in 1 John 4, all of this was driven by love for us. And so Jesus, not only our righteous advocate representing us, calling for justice, yes, they are 100% guilty and deserving just punishment. I'm not overlooking their sins, but I'm allowing you, Jesus, to take their place so that in Christ the righteous one, I see them. But Jesus is also a sacrifice, atoning sacrifice. Crimes have been committed. Someone has to pay the price for those crimes to the offending party. If the wages due for our sins is death, who's going to pay that price? If we sin, we die. That's what God told our parents in the garden. Sin brings death, separation. So who pays that for our sins? We could rightly be killed for every sin that we commit, but we're not. Like literally, you could just die right now because you just committed a sin. It could happen to everyone in this room. Like everyone on earth could just drop dead right now because of sins that we've committed. But we're not because Jesus was. He is our atoning sacrifice. 
Propitiation is a word some of your translations use, and you'll see it also in 1 John 4. God's wrath is set against sin. This is the picture of propitiation. And it's not a wrath that is reckless, out of control, unpredictable. God doesn't fly off the handle in an unpredictable way. That's us, right? That's us and our sinful anger. When our kids come and ask a question, why do you want? Why are you bothering me? I'm in the middle of something. You're watching a football game. Yell, she's trying to win. You're driving me nuts. That's not God. That's us. God's wrath against our sin is his settled, holy character and nature set in opposition to sin. Sin brings death because God is holy and righteous. And sin is a breaking of fellowship with a holy God. And God's holy wrath could be satisfied by judging and condemning and killing every sinner for their sins. It could be. Because sin doesn't belong in the presence of a holy God. There will be no sin in heaven. But that would be if God were only holy, just, and righteous. But God is not only holy, just, and righteous. He's loving, merciful, and gracious. And so if there could be a sacrifice made that would satisfy his wrath against sin while also setting us free, then God could be fully God. And this is the reason that God has ordained that there would be rebellion and sin and evil in creation. This is the reason that God had ordained that he would solve it the way that he solved it through his son, Jesus Christ. It's so that he could be fully known fully revealed as a God who is holy, just, and righteous and fully loving, gracious, and merciful. The ultimate picture of this in all the universe seen in God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. All the Old Testament ceremonial, religious, and sacrificial laws were put in place so that God could have a people to be his people and have a relationship with him while they were still amazingly sinful. The sacrifices were continually made so their sins could be atoned for, covered over. They, like us, deserve death. But God's not just holy. He's also gracious and merciful. So for thousands of years, thousands of animals would be sacrificed so their sins would be passed over and covered by the blood of innocent animals. And this would be continued to this day. If not for the day, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin would no longer just be passed over or covered. Now they would be taken away. And again, this was not done reluctantly by Jesus or by God. God didn't have to be coerced or convinced. Jesus in the garden, he's praying in the weakness of his human nature, sweating drops of blood, if there's any other way, to show us his full humanity, to show us there was no other way. But in love, he walked toward Golgotha knowing at any time, he could call on legions of angels and end this injustice. But love held him there so we could be redeemed, so God could be glorified. So, Christian brother or sister, if you tend to downplay your sins and never really spend time in confession or repentance because your sins aren't so bad, no big deal, like see what it costs Jesus to pay the price for your sins. And Christian brother or sister, if you tend to be in despair over your sins, unable to resist temptation, see Jesus lovingly doing everything necessary to crush the power of sin over you so that you might not sin. And if you're here and you've not trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, see how the Father has loved you, that he gave his only son that whoever in the entire world would trust him, they would not perish but have eternal life. And that's the final aspect 
of this passage that we see, that it's not only good news for us, but for the entire world. When he says, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is the best news to be shared with anyone and everyone. Now, this is not saying the entire world has Jesus' atoning sacrifice applied to them, because even within this one letter, John is making distinctions between those who walk in darkness and those who walk in light. This isn't a version of universalism. All people are atoned for and saved. This is saying the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is enough to save anyone in the world. Jesus is not like a pagan deity that they were familiar with, with regional powers back then. His sacrifice is sufficient to save anyone and everyone in the entire world who would hear and believe and trust in him. What the Agnobis need to hear is this good news of Jesus' atoning sacrifice for their sins so they too could believe and be brought to the fellowship with the Father and the Son. What the Wanchis need to hear is the good news of Jesus as our righteous advocate and atoning sacrifice. What the Laws and the Zazas, the Tibetan Jones and the Baiman and the Bonin need to hear is Jesus is your advocate before the Father. Jesus is your atoning sacrifice. What the Turkish people in Germany need to hear is Jesus as the greatest solution for their greatest problem. What your kids, your spouses, your family, your friends, your parents need to hear is Jesus Christ is God's remedy for your greatest problem. What your neighbors and coworkers and classmates and everyone you see need to hear is Jesus. I know sometimes when we talk about sharing the gospel of Jesus, it makes some of us shrivel up or freak out like, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? And what if they ask me questions? Will I be courageous and brave enough? And all good questions. And there are things like gospel fluency and uh, saturate and threads of the gospel and radical that are all helpful in those things. Other books are helpful, other tools. But um, maybe we should also think about not just sharing the reality of Jesus, but show them the reality of Jesus in your own life. So you, as you're in relationship with people that are far from God, you show them uh, as you're loving them, serving them, helping them, you're open and transparent about your own struggles with sin. So you're not self-righteous. I don't have to struggle with sin. No, I struggle with sin. You're open and transparent about your own struggles with sin and how Jesus is helping you overcome your struggles with sin. How Jesus is helping you obey his commands and grow and mature as a follower of Jesus. How Jesus is helping you deal with the shame and the guilt and the despair and the sorrow that you feel over your own struggle with sin. Or how Jesus is helping you with your arrogance or your self-righteousness of your lack of struggle with sin. Like we can just share our own struggle with the people that we're in relationship with, modeling for them, showing them how Jesus changes us while asking the Spirit to open their eyes and help them see Jesus as their advocate and atoning sacrifice. I'm going to read, close by reading a, a traditional prayer from a Presbyterian prayer book. And I want to invite you to a time of quiet and listening for the Spirit to speak. And, and just what is he saying? Like, is there conviction for you this morning because you tend to downplay sin? And he's inviting you into a time of confession, repentance. Like, run to him. He's lovingly, willingly holding his arms open. Come to me again. Maybe you need encouragement because you tend to live in despair over your sin. Like, again, run to Jesus for what you need. So let me pray, and then um, we'll have a time of quiet. Almighty God, 
you love us, but we have not loved you. You call, but we have not listened. We walk away from our neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We condone, condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, help us to admit our sin so that you come to us in mercy. May we, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer.